been able to get together a few times uh, about a book called Basics for Believers, and she really enjoys the book. And so it's, uh, I'm really happy that I've been able to use that way. Awesome. Following up on someone from um, the jail ministry, Kathy's had an opportunity to disciple them deeper in some of the basics. Great, great news. Good. Anybody else? All right, well, let's get into the Word. If you would turn with me to Acts 14. We saw last week, Acts 13 and 14, the um, uh, Great Commission and what that meant and what that looked like, how that uh, unfolded, shall we say, here, um, of making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey whatsoever Christ commanded and the presence of Christ with them as they did that. And Luke sums up this process here of Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 14.21. I listed about five things last last time of being sent uh, out of the local church, um, the idea of connecting with people so you can connect them to God, discipling and strengthening believers, uh, appointing leaders, and then rejoicing and reporting back. In Acts 14, verse 21 through 23, Luke has some verses here, three verses that really encapsulate the process that he replicates over and over in his missionary journeys. And what God desires to see here as the great commission of making disciples unfolds. And so let's, let's, let's notice them here in these verses, Acts 14, 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught, that word taught is make disciples of many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming, that word is, is strengthening, establishing the souls of the disciples and exhorting, encouraging them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation. Just like you were talking about, Jen, right? The, the pushback that comes with the gospel here. It's part of, the, part of the process, something to be expected. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. They trusted the Holy Spirit now to continue this work. They're going to go back and they're going to write letters and they're going to send key men here along the way, but they're going to trust the Lord to do something here in these, in these churches that they've planted. So if you want to uh, look on the back of your bulletin here to be reminded here of what Paul's missionary strategy was, I'm going to take these ten things here and summarize it into three in a minute here. But look what, look what, uh, look what happens here. So number one, from the home base of Antioch, Paul and his teammate are sent out for the work, the mission the Holy Spirit has for them, which leads us to a question, what is that work? It's the Great Commission, but what does that look like? Well, there's a specific strategy that, and, and, and stages here that are part of this. Number two, they target certain cities in a loop pattern to declare the gospel and call the inhabitants of those cities to repent and believe in Christ. Um, how do they do that? Well, first, they connect with people. They connect with people. They, use, they find point of contact here. And they, get to, they listen, they get to know the people, and, they, and then they share God's message uh, with them. Different in the synagogue than it was to uh, the, the, the Greek pagan, but the point's still the same. Find the point of contact and then share the message. Thirdly, they go to the Jewish centers first by going to the synagogue in virtually every city they enter. After presenting Christ as the resurrected Messiah, when the majority of the Jews reject the message, so there's some that believe, Paul and Barnabas move on to the Gentiles, 
When people believe, disciples are made, they're instructed on the foundations of Christ and the apostles to form unity and purpose. They're formed in the congregation. These congregations have elders set over them to shepherd them and lead them into this unity in the, in the, in the truth and the work. And the elders are to keep multiplying this, replicate the work Paul had done with them here of evangelizing, establishing believers, and trusting to emerging leaders. And they saturate the area of the gospel of their congregations. And so, if you want to boil it down to three things, uh, you could you could put it in. Uh, you could use uh, alliteration and, and keep it a D or keep it an E um, uh, here. But I'll just use an E here to evangelize strategically as they connect with people and then connect those people to Christ um, to establish believers. Uh, and then to entrust that those believers to faithful men who are going to complete the process. Now, you might be wondering, well, that, where does that leave us? And so the next part I want to uh, speak about this morning is uh, the um, uh, part of that process here. Of what does an established and mature church look like? So after they had evangelized, there were believers who had come. The Holy Spirit had, had saved people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we get to an island in the Mediterranean Sea called Crete. And we're not told when this island was evangelized or how they had connected and how this has happened. But we're just kind of thrust into a scene that has already happened. There are believers here. And Paul writes a letter to one of his key men, Titus, and says... Here, and he fleshes out the second parts of that process here. Establishing believers and then entrusting them to faithful men who will see this process continue. So that's where we come uh, in the book of Titus. In fact, in Titus chapter 1 and verse uh, uh, 5, he says, For this cause I left you in Crete, that you should set in order... The things that are wanting or lacking and ordain select elders in every city as I had appointed you. So we're, 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 a window is open to us if we're going to ask the question, what would a church that is set in order in a location look like when it's established and has leaders over them? And so Paul uh, um, uh, tells Titus, these are the kind of leaders you need to set over these churches. These are the kind of leaders in the second part of chapter 1 you need to root out and kind of self-appointed themselves and show they had poor character. And Paul's pattern here to set in order is to establish good leadership, root out the bad leaders, and establish the believers in what Titus 2 through 3 look like. So that's going to be our focus this morning, Titus 2 through 3. And I want you to understand that this is what Paul understood a normal church is to be like. This is what a normal church is to be like. And so we're going to look at Titus 2 through 3, kind of like we would look at a tree in a variety of different ways. Uh, we would look at the tree from the roots, uh, from the trunk to the branches to the leaves and what grows on the, on the branches. That's one way to look at it. You could also take that tree and you could cut cross sections of the trunk this way or this way and examine that tree. Slices and, and cross sections. Or you could look at simply the branches that are growing out of the trunk. We're kind of going to do all of these things today and give you a survey of Titus 2 through 3 and show the underlying principles and what a church that is established looks like. I used to have an immature 
uh, thinking here that churches that were really involved in their community and things besides witnessing and sharing the gospel were missing what was important. But as I began to study the book of Titus several years ago, the Lord showed me that, no, that is the foundation for a strong and powerful impact for the gospel. And so we know, all of us know, that we're supposed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know Christ, because the love of Christ constrains us, compels us to do that. But usually we think in our minds that that means walking up to complete strangers and blurting out the gospel. And although there are situations where that is, that is called for, most of the time the normal way God works is through relationships that you have developed and relationships that have seen the integrity of the gospel at work in you, changed lives. So this morning, as the title in your bulletin indicates here, I want to talk about the strongest impact for Christ. Now, if all of us were honest, we would want to see um, a, a God use us to see people brought into his kingdom. And God has laid out a very clear plan. Remember, he, is, he gave Paul the plan for the church here, to be revealed to the churches. He has laid out a very clear plan for our gospel witness to be sharp, for it to be very efficient, for it to be powerful, and to have the greatest impact. And this is how it happens. So follow the logic of this with me, please. Last week we saw what that Great Commission was from beginning to end. Sent out all the way to report back, right? And I just shared some of the key principles that were employed in that. This week I want to look at tilling up the ground. Seeing it watered. Seeing things planted. Seeing the foundation built in order for the next week, the speaking part. The speaking part of the gospel. Because someone has attributed this to St. Francis of Assisi, though there's no historical record of it, that, uh, that maybe you've heard this adage, preach the, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. Okay? That sounds good at the forefront. I know what those individuals are saying. And what they mean is live out the teachings of Christ and it will open up opportunities. But the truth is you need both. Otherwise, you're out there rowing one oar in a circle, right? You need both. You need word and deed. And by the way, if you want to do a fun study for your devotion, study that phrase, word and deed, in your concordance and see what uh, uh, unfolds through that. God wants both here, okay? Otherwise, we're out of balance. Otherwise, 1 Corinthians 13, we're just talking mouths, right? Playing symbols. And God wants a life that uh, is, 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 is both here of showing goodness, the goodness of God to others, and declaring, proclaiming his goodness here. So that's what we're going to look at in Titus 2 and 3. And so I'm going to read Titus 2 and 3, and we're going to work through it, and uh, then we're going to look at the principles here that God gives us here. Titus chapter 2. Speak thou the things which become or are fitting to sound doctrine or sound teaching. Here they are. Let the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise. That they be in behavior as becomes holiness. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, 
good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part, opposition, may be ashamed, having no evil thing to save you. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not talking back, not purloining or pilfering or stealing, but showing all good fidelity, trustworthiness, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, training, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The word peculiarly, peculiar doesn't mean that has the same connotation of meaning as it does today of weird, but special. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. Put them in mind. Remind them to be subject to principalities and powers, rulers and authorities, governments. To obey magistrates. To be ready to every good work. To speak evil of no man. To be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness to all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes at one point foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic, that's, that actually is a word that means a divisive person. A man that is divisive after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted, perverted, and sinning, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me to Nicopolis, for I've determined there to winter. Paul's a little bit of a snowbird, I think. Bring Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting or lacking to them. And let our, our people, also learn to maintain or practice good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute you. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. <clears throat> the theme of the book of Titus uh, here is how grace works out in our lives. How grace works out in our lives. You'll find grace in that theme repeated, uh, dropped all along the way in Titus 1 through 3. And the idea is God has shown us kindness, and here's how it looks like in the life of a church. 
The first thing I want us to see this morning is that grace changes generational defaults. Generational defaults. By that I mean this. You'll notice in Titus chapter 2 that there are certain things and he tells certain um, age groups of people to focus on. Which means there are tendencies in whatever age you find yourself or season of life to default to. And so it would be because in the flesh and under sin and under dominion of power of sin. But the gospel and grace has changed that. And so he tells the older men that they be sober, they live wisely, that they're worthy of respect, that they have self-control, that they're sound, that they're healthy in faith and in love and in patience. And then he tells the older women also that they be reverent in behavior, worthy of respect in their behavior. Not slanderers, not, not uh, 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 putting down people and slinging mud. Not controlled by addictive substances, given to much wine. But instead be teachers of good things. Specifically the younger women. And younger women, the things that they teach them are to love their husbands. Not put up with your husband. To love your husband. It was a rare thing in Greek and Roman culture... For a woman to love her husband. Many times, marriages were arranged by uh, different sorts of agreements, etc., through families. Uh, but uh, Paul says the thing that should mark a believer, a believing young woman, is that she loves her husband. And by the way, the love, word love there isn't the word agape love, the unconditional love. It's the, it's the word for a brotherly kind of love. Like a, 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 a camaraderie. And love, <clears throat> love their children, same thing. Uh, to be discreet, to be pure, to be chaste, to have a certain type of, mo- of, of, of modesty in the, with the idea and their attitudes and actions that, that they're not drawing attention to themselves. To be keepers at home, homemakers, good, obedient, submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And then in verse 6, the young men. It's kind of like he says, guys, if you can just get this one thing in there, all right. I know you're, 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 you're got, uh, if you can just focus on this one thing, be sober-minded. Live wisely. Live wisely. You get that, and everything else will, will, will come together. And then he tells Titus here, he's probably also a young man, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern here uh, of good works. Uh, in the doctrine, there, in his teaching, he's to show an integrity to it. A reverence, a seriousness, an incorruptibility, an eternal nature of the teaching here. And then sound speech that can't be condemned or rightly criticized because it's what God says. Because uh, there are opponents out there who want to say evil things of you and, and, uh, and, and oppose you. And if you are <coughs> simply speaking what God has said, they can't argue against that or the integrity of what God has said. And so grace changes generational defaults. This might be who you might generally default to here, whatever season of your life you might find yourself in uh, here without Christ. But Paul says, not so with the believer. It's to challenge the norms of society. The second thing I want you to see is that grace changes us to live humble lives. Because then he talks about not just a... a um, an age, but he talks about a, uh, a position in life. 
You see, many of the believers who came to Christ were slaves. The Roman Empire was filled with slaves, slaves, and the and the uh, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ freed them on the inside here to be slaves of Jesus Christ. And he says, "Here's what that looks like in verses nine and ten as you go back to your masters." And then later on in chapter 3, that humility that comes up again, being subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. Humility of serving others, to speak evil of no one, chapter 3 and verse 2. To be peaceable, to, to not be people who are quarreling, but gentle. And boy, if we, could, if we could get this here, showing all humility to all men in your interactions with people. So grace changes generational defaults, and grace changes us from self-centered living to humble, in God's grace, dwelling and living. Why? Because verse 3, we were this way, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living with, a, with, with, a, with a desires to hurt others in various ways. That doesn't just mean going up and punching somebody in the face. There's lots of ways to hurt people. And envy. Oh, we have, uh, without Christ, we have such a jealousy that wells up in our hearts, don't we? Hateful and hating one another. And then he says, Christ came and he changed that. And verse 9 avoiding foolish disputes, genealogies. Some of the Jewish people would, would were very proud of their pedigrees and genealogies and their families and family history chasing their roots and took that as a badge of honor. He says, that's stupid in light of eternity. God's brought you into a family. Contentions or fights and strivings about the Jewish law. He says, they're unprofitable. They waste time. They're useless. They're vain. And if someone's going to be divisive in your church, reject them after you've warned them two times because they're warped. They're sinning and they're condemning themselves with this kind of life. And so it changes us. Grace changes us. Now you might say, well, how does this grace change us? Well, on the back of your sheet there, uh, I've used phrases here from the scripture here, what God has done through grace. He starts out in chapter 1 talking about the grace of God. God in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The grace that God gives. And then in chapter 2, at the end of these instructions, verse 11 through uh, 14, he talks about the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And you can capitalize that word grace because he's talking about a person. Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. Brings salvation. He's appeared to all men. He's given himself for us. The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. He talks about the mercy that God saved us through, through the washing of regeneration, rebirth, new life, renewing of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out His Spirit on us through Jesus Christ. We're new people. We're people of the Spirit, not people of the natural man and the flesh. We've been declared right and perfect in His sight, justified by His grace. We have a confident expectation of eternal life. That's what God's done. That's what He's doing. That's what He's going to continue to do as we look through, look look forward to the blessed hope of His appearing when He returns. 
And he, he makes that the truth that we're heirs together of the hope of eternal life that's going to be sight one day with our eyes. And this really only makes sense if you understand that we were broken in Adam and sinful and rebellious. The wholeness that we had in Adam has been made has been restored in Jesus Christ. There is a um, there is a guy who lived in the fourth century. His name was Athanasius, <clears throat> and he his name means mighty. Uh, they called him the Lion of Africa, um, and he he had a picture of what it meant to be made in the image of God and what happened. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, and we and Romans five tells us we participated in that, though. Uh, Separated by history, that same thing was in our hearts. We were present. What happened at the fall when Adam sinned was that God had made us like portraits of himself. And what happened at the fall was that that portrait was wrecked. Was wrecked. Adam was no longer like God. Vicious, selfish, unholy. And so... That painting, so to speak, being made in the image of God, to reflect God, was ruined. And so how could that portrait be restored? Well, the problem was, you and I can't restore it because we never saw what that original portrait was like, right? We couldn't restore it. To restore it, you had to know God. Otherwise, you'd never know what the image of God looked like. That was the only hope. And so the original subject of the portrait had to come and have his likeness redrawn on that canvas of humanity, and that person was Jesus Christ. The one whose likeness was originally drawn on Adam came, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh to show us what the image of God was, what it is to be truly human, as God intended. So the image of God himself came. He took humanity and he died the death on the cross, was rose, uh, risen again so that humanity could be restored by all those who believe what Jesus had done to restore that. And only Jesus, the very image of God himself, could rehumanize us, so to speak. So Paul says in Colossians that we're, uh, we're made whole in him. There's a wholeness. He says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's where our identity is. And so, a world that is just scheming with all kinds of different ways and frantically looking for ways to find something that lasts in an identity here. And no wonder they have so many identity issues, right? But what God has done for us in Christ, with that image of God that was ruined in Adam, we don't know what we're looking for, so we seek to to, to find things that will make us happy here, but they're, they're, they look like modern art. <laughs> they're monstrous. They're deformed. And only in Christ we find that wholeness. And that's what Paul is saying about Titus, that this wholeness has happened in Jesus. And this is what life now looks like. And so there's a couple things I want us to draw our attention to now. Uh, we saw that grace changes our generational defaults, and it changes us from self-centered beings into humble, grace-filled living. And the next thing I want you to see is this. 
This is something that is not easy for us. This is something that is not natural for us. Grace changes us on the inside by God declaring us pure in his eyes. And it changes us on the outside. One of the cliches people say quite a bit is that it's not a religion, it's a relationship. But friends, I'm afraid that while focusing on the transaction that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, that we tend to simply look at Jesus as a transaction. And we forget that it is relationship. The very living Christ dwells in us. And his goal is to make us like himself. Yes, it was a transaction, and he's brought us to himself in relation to be like him. Notice what Titus says, in, Titus, uh, Paul says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 12, teaching us that not, this grace teaches us, trains us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should then, in this life, in this present age, live in wise living, sensibly, Righteously, godly in this present world. And notice what he says in verse 14 of chapter 2. He gave himself for us. There's the transaction, right? But why? Notice the from, if you're a Bible note taker, from and for in those verses. From and for. He did not redeem us by our good works, Titus 3, 5, but he redeemed us from our bad that being made, uh, that destroying here of who God made us to be in our rebellion, he might redeem us from all iniquity, save us from our sins. He shall call his name Jesus. Why? He shall save us from our sins. That's the problem, right? But look what he says. Redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself, for himself. So there's a negative from and now, two. We're saved from sin and its consequences. And. And. Two. Purify to himself a unique, a special people, zealous of good works. Friends, this isn't just a, a, a strange um, a doctrine that's just taught right here in Titus. This is all over the New Testament. All over the New Testament. Again, the two ors, right? The two ors here. From and to. We're saved from sin to God. Why to God? Because he's trying to, re he's remaking his image in us here. He's placed us in Christ, the true image of God. He's making us like Christ. So grace changes the inside and the outside. That's what I see very clearly in these, in these two chapters. Notice how that wasn't true of the false teachers in chapter 1, verse 16. They profess that they know God, but in what? The way they live, they deny Him. Being detestable, lawful, disobedient to every good work, reprobate, worthless. Right? Hadn't changed them. Hadn't changed them. Secondly, this growing change, which we can call as Christians the good life. The good life. The world looks at it as a restrictive thing, right? And God says, this is the way of blessing. This is the good life. Walk in it. This is to find joy. The good life, the growing change, is the foundation. Listen, this is where we connect to the Great Commission again. 
is the foundation for a powerful witness. Look at 2 verse 5. That the word of God be not blasphemed or dishonored. Okay? Look in chapter 2 verse 8. That he that is of the contrary part, opposition, may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. It speaks whether they accept your message or they reject it. They know you're real. They know the change is real. And verse 10, chapter 2. That they may adorn, decorate, draw attention to the beauty of the teaching of God our Savior in all things. Why? Because verse 14. We're, he's purifying to himself the unique and special people zealous of good works. So this growing change is the powerful foundation for a witness, for an impact on others. We want to see people brought into the kingdom? Let's let God change us and let's participate in that. And then next week we'll look also at how we speak. How we speak to them. Because it's both, right? And thirdly, why does Paul have to give us this mountain of material here? Because we will tend to drift, right? Gravity of this world will pull us down. But God's given us supernatural helium, right? The Holy Spirit to help us rise above that, cooperating with Him. So we're going to drift into laziness. And so listen, listen. I just I want you to see this, this, this third point here. I want you to see how important this is. How important Paul thinks this, this is. Okay? Paul doesn't just think he's inspired by the Spirit. But how important he knows this to be, okay? We will drift into laziness, which is why Paul has to say in chapter 2, verse 1. But what? Speak thou the things which become or are in accord or are fitting to, or uh, promote the things that are in line with godly living. He's got to tell Titus, ears, be ready for this to spread. Ears got to hear this, okay? Notice what he says in 2, verse 6. Exhort these things. Verse 9. Exhort servants. Verse 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. Let no man despise you. Let no man disregard you. This is important. Are you getting the the, the idea here that this isn't this isn't something that you can put on the table and say, mm, that's an orange, but I like apples. No, this is this is key. Why? Well, look at that. Just a second. Verse three, verse one. Put them in mind. Remind them of these things. Three eight. This is the faithful saying, and these things I want, I will that you what affirm. Constantly. Affirm constantly. Um, <clears throat> uh, insist on is what he's saying. What? That those who believe in God should be devoted, careful to maintain good works. And verse 14 of chapter 3. Let ours also learn. So it's, by the way, this isn't something that's going to happen instantly. This is God's grace still at work in us, right? There's a learning process, the unlearning and then the learning. Let ours also learn 
to maintain good works for necessary urgent uses that they be not unfruitful. So why does this have to be reminded? Because why does it have to be insisted on? Why do people have to be rebuked for not living in line with these things? Because we'll drift into laziness or not in tune with the Lord. Okay? So I want you to see the authority and importance that Paul puts on this. And then finally, I want you to be reminded here, because of the great weight of this, right? I can't measure up to this. You can't measure up to this. But one already has. One already has. Jesus is that perfect image of God. You're in him. And he has poured out what his Titus 3 said, 3, 5, and 6 say, he's poured out his spirit in us to see this to continue here. And I want to remind you that he gives more grace. He gives grace, strength, kindness, forgiveness when you fail. He gives power to do this. He gives more grace. You can look in chapter 1, 1 through 3, chapter 2, 11 through 14, chapter 3. <clears throat> these things where you once were in verse 3, but verse 4, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And he didn't just save us and put us in the transaction and hand us a ticket to heaven. What did he do? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost, he shed on us abundantly, without measure, through Jesus Christ our Savior. He poured out his Spirit on us. And so, friends, this is how we partner in the Great Commission and find our role. So that next week, when we look at the Scriptures in Colossians... We have a strong foundation here and a strong impact and the soil has been tilled up and watered here to speak of the change that Christ makes in our sharing the gospel. Because God has done a work in us to align our lives to the gospel message. You wonder why people don't come into the kingdom. Maybe this might be part of it, right? Let's examine each of our own hearts. We want to be most effective and have the most impact for Christ, right? Listen, the world is bombarded with information. Everybody's selling them and, and saying, try this, try this, try that, right? They want to see what's real. They want to see what works. The world is waiting to see how it changed us before they sell, uh, before they... Uh, uh, sell what they have to buy the truth. And Titus 2 and 3 shows us how our lives, zealous for doing good, because God is a God who has done good to us, shows how the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is seen visibly in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, with our family members, in our social media, etc. here. And what Areas from Titus 2 and 3, do you need to see God do a work as you cooperate with him by faith, deeply, and by God's grace to lay a solid foundation for your witness and your networks and your communities? Where does he need you to be active in and helping and showing kindness that you can take initiative in this summer? So next week we'll look into the word here in Colossians and see, well, how do we speak God's message? And how does God use our lips as well? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it is, is very clear, it's authoritative, 
Uh, it lays a fertile foundation for uh, hearts to um, be uh, persuaded. Lord, we know that our work is to be faithful and to share the faithful message of the gospel. And your Holy Spirit is the one who does the work after that. So help us to be in cooperation with you, to be living in your grace, to be seeking forgiveness quickly uh, when we fail, when we fall. Thank you for that grace, that kindness you show to us day to day, your mercies that are new every morning. Help us to walk in that, uh, to be right with you, and then to pursue the things um, that um, impact our community for a strong witness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for your patience this morning and the